0: Hi, I'm Timothy. I teach and write about apologetics, and there has never yet been a day that I thought was too hot. And I'm Garrick, and I have worn spandex in public far more than I'd like to admit. Well, one of the strongest evidences for the truth of the resurrection is what happened to the apostles in the decades that followed the death of Jesus. According to some reports, many of the first followers of Jesus gave their lives rather than turn away from what they had proclaimed about Jesus. But it's important that Christians today tell these stories accurately. And so joining us in the first half of today's program to talk about what happened to the apostles is Sean McDowell, apologist, scholar, and author of the book The Fate of the Apostles. If you're interested in learning more about how to engage people who are skeptical about the truth of the Bible, take a look at the book Truth in a Culture of Doubt by Josh Chatrou and Daryl Bach from our friends at B&H Academic. That's Truth in a Culture of Doubt. To learn more, go to bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll.
1: Garrett here, and one of our favorite apologists is joining us today. Sean McDowell is professor of apologetics at Biola University and author of several books, including The Fate of the Apostles. Welcome to the show today, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Garrett. How are you, buddy? I am fantastic. Hey, I have a random question for you. When you are driving down the road in beautiful Southern California and you feel like no one in the world is watching you... What music might come on the radio or in your cassette player, whatever that may be, that's going to get your your head moving, that might cause you to bang your head wildly to where if anyone else were actually watching it, it might prove embarrassing for you?
2: Well, there's no question that when I want to just rock out, I turn to 80s music, hands down. I'm a product of my era growing up in the 80s whether it's funny bands like The Cure Occasionally. I'm like, I just need to hear a Cure song. Maybe a little rock from the 80s, a little Def Leppard. You know, I'm going to break out the 80s. Oh,
1: absolutely. I've I've recently introduced my 12-year-old daughter to the Apple Music station, I guess, or playlist, whatever it is, the hair metal, the 80s hair bands, and she now claims her new favorite band is Bon Jovi, so, you know, I must be doing something right.
0: Yeah, that's called discipleship right there. Yes, it is. is. I have failed with my children. None of them enjoy 80s rock except for my oldest child and i I put an acdc the other day and one of my daughters says that sounds like donald duck joined a rock band what
1: i don't even know what that means all right
0: well i'm wondering sean if you could tell us about what was the fate of the apostles what had happened to the apostles by the end of the first century
2: Well, that's tricky because there's 12 of the apostles, and then we have Paul and James and some of the others that had apostolic authority. And there's so many different traditions and narratives around the different apostles. And also, some of them, we have good knowledge and understanding of what happened. Some of them, it's really hard to separate history from kind of tradition and legend. So I start off my research on this, having heard the common argument that All the apostles, except maybe John, believed they had seen the risen Jesus, were willing to die for this, and they all did in a variety of different ways. Therefore, the resurrection is true, how this argument often goes. I thought, you know what? I wonder, what is the evidence they actually died as martyrs? What's the evidence they really saw Jesus? How convincing is this? Let's just see if this argument stands, and I started to break it down in my research.
1: So, Sean, selfishly, one of my areas of research is the the history and the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. So the whole idea and research of the history of the apostles is obviously fascinating to me. But as you did this research for the fate of the apostles, was there anything that you discovered that just absolutely shocked you or surprised you?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure I would say anything absolutely shocked me because I'm an academic and I'm supposed to be dispassionate. But I love the question because what did surprise me is I went into this assuming that at least the common belief was that 11 of the 12 apostles died as martyrs and John didn't. But I came across a number of leading scholars, people like Ben Witherington and Richard Bauckham, New Testament professors that are conservatives who believe that John actually died as a martyr and didn't die in exile. Now, that raises questions. Number one, why would they believe that? And they point to certain passages like John being all over the beginning of Acts, but disappearing at the Jerusalem Council. Why? Because he had already died with his brother James around the time of Acts 12, too, where Jesus says to James and John, when they want to sit in his right hand, his left hand, he says, can you drink the cup? And they say, yes, we can drink the cup. And he says, you will. Well, there's good reason to believe that can you drink the cup means not just suffering, but death we know James did so arguably John did as well. I don't fully buy these arguments, but I had no concept there would be people that would argue that John died as martyr and at least put forward arguments that should be considered. So that was a fascinating uh, discovery that I just I didn't even anticipate going into the research.
0: Which of the apostles is there the best evidence for them having been martyred for their faith?
2: So I think there's four if we take again the 12, And then also James a brother of Jesus and Paul. Four that are high probability, two that you could make the case that are at least more probable than not, and then I think the remaining group is just we don't know where history ends and tradition begins, so to speak. So I think the top four would be both James, James the son of Zebedee, we have Acts 12, James a brother of Jesus, we have Josephus and early Christian sources and Gnostic sources interestingly enough, and then I would say Paul and Peter. Those four, we have early, consistent, multiple testimonies that agree on their early deaths, and I think they would be considered martyrs as well. The two that are at least arguably more probable than not would be, say, Andrew and Thomas. Now, the evidence is a little weaker, it's a little bit later, but there's some reason to say, okay, they might really be talking about history here, And then the others, like, for example, Bartholomew, I mean, the poor guy, there are so many traditions of his death that he was drowned, he was burned, he was skinned alive, he was crucified, he was beheaded. I mean, there's all these traditions about him that it's so hard to know really what's fiction and what is true.
0: One of the great temptations in apologetics, and you've hinted at this already just a little bit, is to select the best evidence to support the truth of the Christian faith, even if the historical foundations for that evidence aren't actually as strong as they ought to be. And when Christians do that, the problem is sometimes we're stretching the truth to defend the truth, and that really undercuts the truth because we're supposed to be worshiping a God of truth. So we're stretching the truth to supposedly bring glory to the God of truth which is not going to glorify him at all. It ends up undercutting our case. And so with all that in mind, what are some of the urban legends, we might say, about the deaths of the apostles that some Christians believe without adequate evidence?
2: I think probably the most common one would be that Peter was crucified upside down. If you ask anybody what happened to Peter, they'll say he was crucified upside down because he was so humble he requested to not be crucified in the way that Jesus was crucified. Well, let me just ask you a question for, for thought. Do you think the Romans took suggestions about how you wanted to be crucified? I mean, just let that sink in for a second. The answer is, of course, not. Well, the first record that this shows up in is in a book that's apocryphal called The Acts of Peter, The End of the Second Century. And if you read that, and anyone can read it online, it has nothing to do with his initial request of being too humble. Rather, if you read it closely, the idea is the world has been turned upside down. So when Peter's upside down the cross, he can see the world more clearly, and his death will help turn the world right in a fashion similar to the death of Jesus. It's only later that church fathers start adding the idea, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, that it's because he was too humble to die this way. Now, with that said, there is some precedent, like Martin Hengel's book, Crucifixion, for people being crucified in a range of different ways. So it's not impossible. But I think the evidence to say with any you know, confidence that it actually happened is really minimal. Now, I think he died as a martyr. But if I had to guess, I'd say probably this was added on later and doesn't represent historical facts, although it's certainly possible.
0: Right. I think that's one of the most important ones for people to know that that is something that probably is apocryphal. As mentioned in Martin Hingel's book, Seneca describes about a half dozen different ways that people are crucified, which means it's theoretically possible, but there is not good evidence for that in the actual historical sources.
1: In terms of apologetics, why does it matter that some people who walked and talked with Jesus may have died as martyrs for their faith in him. Why does that matter?
2: Well, here's the way I frame the argument. I say the apostles believed they had seen the risen Jesus, and they were all willing to suffer and die for that conviction. Now, even if none of them actually died as martyrs, their willingness, which we see in Acts 4 and 5 and beyond, shows that they're not liars— They're not inventing this story to intentionally put themselves in harm's way. Now, it doesn't prove that it's true. And their willingness to suffer and die by itself doesn't overturn, say, the hallucination hypothesis. We've got to go elsewhere to look at the problems for the hallucination hypothesis. So their willingness to suffer and die and the fact that none of them recanted, and we do have evidence, at least there's no record of any of them recanting. And we do have record that some of them died as martyrs, tells me that they're not liars. And we can at least trust the depth of their sincerity. And you couple that with the other evidence for the resurrection, then you have a strong case. So this alone doesn't get us to the truth of the resurrection. It's just one piece, an important piece. Now, by the way, the idea of recanting, you might be thinking, as critics have often told me, well, that's an argument from silence. Just because we don't have a record of them recanting doesn't prove anything at all. And I say, technically, that's right. But it's an argument from silence with some teeth, meaning both believers and skeptics would have incentive to highlight if there were even any traditions about an apostle that had recanted their faith. Now, why would believers? Because you get into the second, third, fourth centuries, and there was debate about what happens to Christians who fail to go through the act of martyrdom. Can they be forgiven and stay in the fold? Well, if that happened to an apostle, you better believe some kind of theologian would have brought this up. And of course, critics would have brought it up if they knew the story to try to discount the Christian faith. So yes, it's a point of silence, but I think it has some teeth that there's not a shred of evidence anywhere and them recanted. They all believed they'd seen the risen Jesus and are willing to suffer and die for this conviction. I can't convince myself that they made this up.
0: In the middle of the second century, when Polycarp is martyred for his faith, he is given an option of being able to Offer a sacrifice to the emperor, and in exchange for that, he would receive his life, so to speak. And so, if we think about that in terms of the apostles, if that pattern had been followed with them, then I think there would also be some reaction, some record of that. If one of the apostles actually did offer a pinch of incense at the altar of the emperor, I think we would get some information about that. So, I agree with you. It is something that has some teeth. Yes, it's from silence, but it's a silence that by that silence, silence, it lets us know that at least there was no clear recantation of any of what they were believing, and there is precedent from other people that they were given an option, given an opportunity to engage in an act that would demonstrate their loyalty to the Roman Empire and thus free them from being martyred for their faith. They would have probably been given that opportunity. Well, Sean, you've recently written a book with J. Warner Wallace entitled So the Next Generation Will Know. Can you tell us about that book? And more importantly, can you tell our listeners why you wrote that book?
2: Yeah, probably the biggest reason I wrote it is because of my kids. My son, Scotty, who's 15, my daughter, Sean, who's 12, and my son, Shane, who's six. In other words, I care about passing on my faith to them and looking for resources to help me. This book came to mind, and I thought, you know what? If I have to research and think about and write this book, it's going to help me get better first off as a parent. Now, that wasn't my only motivation, but there was a built-in motivation like, I want to figure this stuff out. I want to think about it. I want to come up with a plan that I myself can use. And if I do that, I'm guessing a lot of other people are going to say, you know what, this would be helpful to me as well. So that's the main reason I wrote it. And basically, it's it's a handbook. It's not that long. I think it's less than 40,000 words. We didn't want to be verbose, but we did a ton of research on Gen Z. We're talking every book I could get my hands on, hundreds of pages of studies, and then said, all right, here's some things that are unique about this generation. Gen Zers are basically elementary kids through college students right now, roughly. How do we practically pass on our faith to them? And basically, the book says there are certain timeless truths that are in Scripture that apply to pass on the faith to any generation. But then there's certain timely truths in light of how this generation thinks, in light of where we find ourselves in a cultural moment. How do we bring both of these two together and just give a nuts and bolts book so everybody can at least walk away and say, you know what, here's two or three things I can practically do tomorrow with the young people in my community? Sean,
1: was the uniqueness of Gen Z the gap that you saw in kind of the current whatever resources, whatever books were out there? Or was it something else or a combination of lack of something you saw out there when you thought about your own kids and and passing on the faith and how to help parents or how to think through that?
2: I think it was a combination of factors. Number one, just started researching a ton about Gen Z and realizing that they're not millennials 2.0. There's significant differences there and thinking, you know what, we have to really think through how to effectively reach and equip this generation and didn't see any resource that was really research based. Now, the whole book is not full of research. We have one chapter on it, but the suggestions and ideas are deeply research based for helping them. That was one reason. And second, my co-author, Jay Werner Walsh, and I have been working with this generation in different capacities as youth pastors, teachers, speakers, parents, mentors, counselors, kind of approached him and just said, gosh, you and I have a unique approach, unique insight into this generation. I think we actually have a voice and some authority here that we could speak into this uniquely in a way that somebody hasn't. So it's probably a combination of those kinds of factors that really made us say, you know what, we gotta write this book.
1: Well, parents and pastors and youth workers of the world, we here at Three Chords and the Truth would strongly encourage you to go out and pick up the book so the next generation will know by Sean
0: McDowell. Well, now is the time again for the Infinity Gauntlet. When we draw forth that gauntlet from which or through which, by which Thanos wiped out half the life of the universe, and we draw forth a question that is one of the great questions that vexes mankind and that causes conflict between families and even divisions between co hosts of programs on the internet.
1: This one might do it. So the question for today is which one would win? And why? Obi-Wan Kenobi or Albus Dumbledore. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's so fun. So fun. Gosh. Dumbledore. Yeah, so this is this sounds a lot like the we had the what was it, Yoda and Gandalf. So this kind of has that same feel to it. And I'm usually gonna vote I love Jedi's. They're they're my favorite, but I'm usually gonna vote for the wizard.
0: And I'm not entirely certain that a lightsaber can block a curse in harry potter's world because a lightsaber is just light hence the name lightsaber so i don't think it can block a curse i think a curse from the elder wand is going to fly right through that lightsaber and obi-wan will be very disappointed at realizing that uh, it doesn't block that what do you think sean
2: well i really hate to disappoint you guys no
0: this is good this is always good iron sharpens
1: iron sean
2: on the scale of nerdness but I have not read or watched any of the Harry Potter stories. Period.
1: That's that's totally fine. Totally fine. There's <laughs> there's only a little shame in that. I'm no, just kidding. I'm just
0: kidding. But you have watched Star Wars. I, I'm assuming that.
1: Oh come on. I know. Yeah, okay. yeah. I know. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Well, just, I mean, just generally speaking, though, if you just think about wizards, like powerful wizards, you know, versus just a powerful Jedi, like generally speaking, any thoughts there?
2: I might go with a wizard. If it was Gandalf in that place, since I've seen those, I I have to roll with a wizard.
1: Yeah, we did have that question previously, Gandalf versus Yoda. And I mean, it was pretty unanimous that Gandalf takes that one. So what are you going to do?
0: Rock and roll. It's one of the greatest inventions in human history and one of the supreme expressions of common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with the summer of love and ended with grunge. And that's why each week in the second half of this program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for divine truth in classic rock. This is Timothy from the 1970s.
1: And this is Garrick from the 1980s. High school graduation songs. Who doesn't love them?
0: What makes a good high school graduation song, Timothy? Well, I think it's when they're hopeful and they're forward-looking. I think one of the important things in a good high school graduation song is it doesn't look back on high school as if these are the greatest years of your life. Because after all, if Brian Adams was right in summer of 69 that those years are the best years of your life, you're a loser.
1: I don't know about you, Timothy, but my high school years were pretty awesome, though. Do you have any examples
0: of of songs you think are decent or
1: even good?
0: Well, even though it's a really cheesy song, I think that Leanne Womack's song, I Hope You Dance, that's one that's the kind of forward looking. It's joyful. But then others like, you know, I could admit I like Katy Perry and Firework. Uh-huh. That is a great song. In yep. that Van Halen right now, that would be a great yes. high school graduation song. I've actually never heard it used as one, but it should be.
1: Every year, every high school should be Van Halen right now.
0: So what makes them bad? That's the other thing. What makes a really terrible high school graduation song? And I think that's one that is despairing, backward looking, or like we mentioned earlier, the one that treats those years as if they're the best years of your life. Well, the other thing that would make them bad is if they're by Nickelback or Creed. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That would be automatically that it's a bad one. So Nickelback, Photograph, Creed, What's This Life For? Either of those automatically means you ought to have to go back and repeat high school. Yeah, I
1: feel like there's a lot of angry songs that are used for high school graduation songs, like Green Day's Good Riddance is one I could think of. I ran across one, one of the angrier reflecting on high school songs I had ever run into, and I hadn't heard of it before this, but a band called The Wonder wrote this song my last semester, which I would not recommend anyone listening to this podcast goes and listens to. Just take my word for it. It it scared me a bit.
0: On the other end from that, in terms of ones that look on these as the best years of your life, you've got Michael W. Smith's song, Friends, which when I was in high school, anybody in a cool high school or a Christian high school that could listen to contemporary Christian music, they listened to as their high school graduation song, Michael W. Smith, Friends, Friends are Friends Forever if the Lord's the Lord of Them, was how that song went. Now, In my high school, it was a very narrow Christian high school, and we had to choose a song out of the hymnal as our high school graduation song, which is the worst. Of the worst. That's worse than Nickelbacker. Uh, Creed, to have I don't, to choose it out of the. Animal. I don't know.
1: I think ours was like I always get it mixed up. We either had Madonna's Remember the Time. <laughs> so I voted for U2's one. Right. But no, that was thrown out. So it was either Madonna's Remember the Time or it was R. Kelly's I Believe I Can Fly. I, I can't remember,
0: but it was bad. So I remember a time in the 1990s in Green Ridge High School in Green Ridge, Missouri, a tiny little town in Missouri where I was the pastor. That was the time when the high school graduating class of that high school voted for Kansas Dust in the Wind as their high school graduation song. And I remember the awkwardness of sitting there as the song is being played and these high schoolers had chosen Dust in the Wind, All We Are is Dust in the Wind, as their high school graduation
1: song yeah not much forethought on that one but it may it may be a terrible way to celebrate your graduation from high school but it is still one of the greatest songs
0: in the history of rock and roll Definitely. I mean, it is one of those that is a great song. Released in 1977, hits the top 10 on the Billboard charts in April of 1978, is by far the most successful song by the band Kansas. And it was written by Kerry Livgren, who wrote, the, he wrote this song, and he was from Topeka, Kansas, which is where my wife and I met. So we have fond memories of Topeka, Kansas. I think that may be our only fond memory of Topeka, Kansas. But nonetheless, we did meet there. And he he formed actually three different bands under the name Kansas. He was apparently really enamored with calling a band Kansas. Very the persistent. third one, he finally succeeded. And in 1973, they were signed to a record contract after playing a gig in Ellenwood, Kansas. Now, that's about a couple of hours southwest of Manhattan, Kansas, which is where I went to college and played in a band. And we were never signed to a record contract. Maybe we would have been if we had played in Ellenwood, Kansas. So Or called yourself Kansas. Exactly. called our, We called ourselves Encomia. And as we've talked about before, nobody could pronounce it. And therefore, we never got a recording contract. That's we played why. in McPherson, Kansas, which is near Ellenwood. But uh, nonetheless, we had never played in Ellenwood. Well, Kansas, though, they were one of these early progressive rock bands. Pink Floyd is a progressive rock band. Moody Blues was kind of an early progressive rock band. And what we start to see in the 1970s with these progressive rock bands is they're moving away from the protest songs of the 1960s kind of even moving away from the sex-drugs rebellion of the late 1960s and the early 1970s. And it's these bands that have really deep and evocative lyrics and imagery with music that's really precise and really complex. And Kansas, they were really neat in some ways. Their sound is really unique and different because they combined progressive rock with elements and instruments from folk music. And that's what we hear in Dust in the Wind. It begins actually as a finger-picking exercise on the guitar. Carrie Livgren was just using this as an exercise on the guitar, and his wife said to him, that sounds really nice. You should make it into a song. She's a genius. Exactly. She she got that. She understood that. It reminds me at that level of Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses, which that opening riff of Sweet Child of Mine actually was a string-skipping exercise that Slash was doing, and they said, you should make it into a song. His wife said, it sounds nice, you ought to make it into a song. He'd been reading a book of Native American poetry and had that line in it, all we are is dust in the wind. And about 15 minutes after she said that, he had written the entire song.
1: That's right. And many decades later, a young Garrick Bailey would be introduced to the song again through the movie, the epic movie, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which is where I was both introduced to the band Kansas, the song Dust in the Wind and the historical figure of Socrates. So pretty much
0: So pretty much. here's how it goes with Garrick and I and rock and roll is that I was introduced to every rock song early on that I knew through anti-rock music yep. fundamentalist seminars and Garrick he just watched Bill and Ted. That's right. Which Thank you don't get any more polar opposite right. than a fundamentalist church and Bill and Ted.
1: Thank you Keanu Reeves. So the lyrics in the song are so powerful in many ways. Some of the lyrics say I close my eyes only for a moment and the moment's gone all my dreams pass before my eyes a curiosity same old song just a drop of water in an endless sea
0: The main guitar part actually is two guitars playing at the same time. One of them is in Nashville tuning, which means you put thinner strings on, tune them the same way as your regular guitar, but it's thinner strings. And then the other one is a standard guitar. And one's tuned higher, one's tuned lower, an octave higher on the lower strings. But the the effect you get is like a 12-string guitar. Hmm. But what you're listening to is two different guitars and those slight imperfections, so to speak, in playing it in unison together actually produce some of this wide sweeping tone that you have on this, and it's just such a great sound early on in this song. When this song was released, Kansas had released four albums, but they'd only had one hit. And that's another great song, Carry On, Wayward Son, which is an amazing song in and of itself. But this is on their fifth album, and it's The Point of No Return, K-N-O-W, The Point of No Return. And this one included the song Dust in the Wind.
1: Yeah. So let's think about this song in the context of biblical truth. Is it really
0: true that all we are is dust in the wind? Well, I think when we look at this biblically, we have to look at Genesis and Ecclesiastes at first. I think those are two kind of marks, bookmarks, we might say, to help us think about this song. In Genesis, it helps us to think biblically about our past, our origins, who we are as we were originally created. And Ecclesiastes helps us to think about our present in a biblical way, how we are in light of sin and in light of the fall. Yeah.
1: In Genesis, in the first two chapters, in the first few pages, of the Bible we have the creation of humans Genesis 2: 7 tells us that we were formed from dust but that's not all it tells us then that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life that this was how he was given life so yes we are formed from dust but we're we're more than mere dust it's true that we're
0: dust but it's not true that All we are is dust. And that's what we see in Genesis, where Adam is formed from the dust, but God makes him more than dust. God breathes into him the breath of life. But we also find out in the first few pages of Genesis, by Genesis chapter 3, that because of sin, we return to the dust. And in a world of brokenness and of death and of pain, it can and it does feel at times like all we are is dust in the wind. And that kind of brings us to Ecclesiastes. Now I have to say, Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. I have it memorized. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> it is this great text in Ecclesiastes, and it's the record of one man's search for the order of blessing and brokenness amidst the chaos of life. Where's the blessing? Where's the brokenness? What does all this mean in the chaos of life? And probably the author of Ecclesiastes is Solomon, but all it actually says is that it's a son of David who's a king in Jerusalem. And it's someone who has experienced all the pleasure and all the power that's available under the sun, and he's trying to find the meaning in it. But the theme throughout the book is, one of the themes throughout the book, is found early on in the book in chapter one, where he says, all is vanity, all is in Hebrew, havel, all is vapor, all is fog, all is chasing after the wind. He's saying everything that I see is vanity, havel, vapor, fog, chasing after the wind. And then he goes on and by the end of chapter two, he says, there's nothing better than for a person to eat and drink and find pleasure in his labor. But this also is havel it is vapor it is fog it is vanity it is chasing after the wind and he moves on then to chapter 3 where he says to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven which the birds by the way made into a great song in 1965 turn 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 but the truth is the birds made that a lot more positive than Ecclesiastes does because at the end of that they say it's a time for peace and I swear it's not too late it's not too late for peace so, a time for- That's not how that ends in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, the end of that is, what gain does the worker have from all his work in chapter 3 and verse 9? Chapter 3 and verse 20, everyone goes to the same place, all are from dust, and to dust all return. And when you read that in Ecclesiastes, it actually sounds like Carrie Livgren was right. <laughs> Maybe all we are is dust in the wind. But there's this beautiful recurrent phrase in Ecclesiastes, and that phrase is, under the sun all that he's talking about is the way life is under the sun and what he gets at through that phrase under the sun is that all that he's describing about meaninglessness all that he's describing about that's just vanity it is just dust and fog and vapor all that is not the final word it's just the way life seems it's the way life feels under the sun and I love that. I love that. And I love it because we live in churches often, or maybe we've just grown up in churches at times, that people gave all sorts of these pious platitudes. God won't give you any more than you can handle. Believe in yourself. And all these phrases that they they sound really inspiring if they're put on a poster with a cat, but they really don't work in real life. Uh, they don't work. They're these cat poster platitudes that ring hollow when you're actually crumbling beneath the crushing weight of life. And I think that sometimes when people say things like that that belong on cat posters, it's kind of like the religious equivalent of Emmett in the Lego movie, where he sees corruption around him. He sees evil. He sees manipulation. But what does Emmett say? Everything is awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And it is a wonderful song. And he
1: thinks that everything is awesome when what? When you're a part of this team, which, which for him is living a dream, right? And this is all he sees. This is all he desires. This is all he chases after in his life, the author of Ecclesiastes, if he were in the Lego movie, would say something like, listen, Emmett, I ran the team. I lived every dream. And I found that, yes, some parts of life have been awesome, but life is full of brokenness as well. Life isn't always awesome, even when you are
0: living the dream. And that's what I think Ecclesiastes lets us know so clearly is that you can have it all and still be miserable if you just live your life under the sun. That is to say, live your life apart from any reference to anything greater than what is around us and what we see and taste and touch and feel. And I. that's why I like Ecclesiastes. It's the only book of the Bible that feels like it might have been written on a Monday morning. I mean, that's what I feel about Ecclesiastes and that key word in there, havel, vapor, cloud, fog, dust in the wind. And what it seems to be trying to communicate is that if you live life Under the sun, that is without reference to anything greater than what you see around you, life is like dust in the wind. You can't grab a hold of it. People sometimes say, grab life by the horns. And the point of Ecclesiastes is life doesn't have any horns to grab if you're just looking at it completely under the sun. This is the problem, the age-old problem of what we call empiricism,
1: that everything that can be known can only be known because it can be experienced, but... Ecclesiastes and the Christian narrative,
0: the Christian belief is there's more to life than what's under the sun. And I think Ecclesiastes, it really does just reveal that so beautifully. It's a book of unparalleled beauty and balance, I find. there's If you really study the book and get really into it, there's 222 sentences in the entire book, and it's organized precisely in two halves. And it's this brilliantly laid out book. And the second half of the book begins at chapter 6 and verse 10. And in that second half, he moves forward from this idea of all there is is life under the sun, and it's all meaningless. And he's still says those kind of things. He says, still says it's all fog, it's all passing away. But he begins to develop this idea in the second half of the book that God's ways are unknown. We can't trace God's ways. We don't understand God's ways. We live under the sun and we don't know what God may be doing beyond the sun, we might say.
1: Yeah. And so not to repeat myself too much, under the sun, given under the sun, and if if that's all there was, than dust in the wind and all that it has to say to us is entirely correct. But there is more to life than what we see, what we can feel, what we can touch, than what is merely under the sun.
0: And I think that's what we see ultimately, of course, in the incarnation. Yeah. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah. Ultimately, God in Christ comes from beyond the sun. And that's the part that even the author of Ecclesiastes didn't know and he couldn't see. He didn't know that. All he's able to say in that second half of the book is, God's ways are untraceable. We don't understand it. And then he ends up at the end and says, look, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole of every person is to do those things. That's as far as he can get from the vantage point he has. He's under the sun. He admits there is a God who's doing something beyond the sun, but he doesn't know And the beautiful and wonderful thing is that in the incarnation of Jesus Christ is that he enters our life under the sun. He enters into it, and that's what he's getting at in Isaiah chapter 53, when in Isaiah the prophet says, he was despised and rejected. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In other words, that Christ, God in Christ, lived under the sun, He experienced the pain of life under the sun. He was laid in the dust, literally. Uh, His life became dust in the wind, we might say, but he was laid in the dust, so to speak, but he did not pass away. It was not dust in the wind that passes away. Rather, God brought life from beyond the sun. He raised him to life, and he brought life to everyone who will seek their life in him. And that's the beautiful thing, is that God himself enters into the dust, so to speak, and triumphs over it. And that's what really is the ultimate answer to this song is all we are is dust and blue. It's like, no, no, we are dust. Yep, We are dust, but we're more than dust. It's not all we are. And the only way that we know that truly ultimately is because heaven in some sense beyond the sun has intersected human history and demonstrated that there is more yeah. than what we see in this life. It, and it seems like that the writers of the song didn't miss that entirely. Not entirely, not Kerry Livgren, anyway. So Kerry Livgren, who wrote this song, he was on a spiritual quest, like many people we see in the 60s and 70s in particular. And he says that his spiritual quest started when he was about nine years old. He said when he was nine years old, in an interview much later, he said that his grandmother and his family's best friend died the same week. And that experience of death, it caused a change, he said, in his nature. And he said, I know I'm going to live forever, but if I'm not going to, I had to find out why I was here. Hmm. And he said, with that awareness of my own finality, I began a quest. He said it started when he was nine years old, this recognition that there's something else. And, and if there's not something else, I want to find out what at least that there is. And he said he started on this quest. And we see part of that in one of their other hits, the only hit before this, Carry On Wayward Son. We see that he's really on this spiritual quest. And about a year after Dust in the Wind actually hit the billboard charts, Kerry Livgren thought he found the answer. He became really enamored with this book called The Urantia Book. And it's this really weird, bizarre series of supposed special secret revelations about Jesus. Nobody knows where it came from. It comes from sometime in the early 20th century. It's a little bit of Gnosticism mixed with some transcendentalism. It's like Ralph Waldo Emerson and the Gospel of Thomas mixed together. It's really strange. I'll just give you a sentence from it, and you get a feel for it, okay? God consciousness is equivalent to the integration of the self with the universe and on its highest levels of spiritual reality. That's pretty much the type of thing that the Urantia book is doing, and according to it, Paul... Paul had invented this other form of Christianity different from what Jesus had. But he became, Carrie Livgren, who wrote Dust in the Wind, became really enamored with this book, the Eurantia book. But then in 1980, they're touring with a group called Louisiana's LaRue. And let me just tell you, you ought to go listen to Louisiana's LaRue. They're a band that never quite made it but should have. But Kansas was touring with them, and a guy named Jeff Pollard in that band was a Christian and started telling Kerry Livgren he ought to look at the Gospels because the Gospels make better sense of history than the Urantia book did. And as a result of that, Kerry Livgren started reading the Gospels and he became convinced that they told the truth about who Jesus was, that the Urantia book was not the one that told the truth. The Gospels told the truth and he received Christ as his savior in a hotel room on that tour in 1980.
1: That's such a great story.
0: And so he becomes a believer and Kansas after that releases three albums that are really rich With Christian imagery. And as far as I'm concerned, anyway, Vinyl Confessions, which is a Kansas album that really has that clear Christian worldview emphasis in it, is just outstanding simply as a work of art. It really is a great album, Vinyl Confessions, by Kansas after that. Eventually, Kerry Livgren left Kansas, formed a band called AD. Even in that, he did some amazing music, Seeds of Change, Art of the State, Reconstructions with his band AD. But you see some of that journey in Dust in the Wind. He was on a journey toward Christ, even though he didn't know it, that took him a lot of different places, and wrote this amazing song, Dust in the Wind, one that's partly true, but not all the way true. And it's part of his journey. And it was a journey that eventually led Carrie Livgren to the one through whom we are created. We were created from the dust of the earth, but we are more than dust. Yep. We are more than that. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash truth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth.
2: Wild life. But no one answers back.